Hi, I'm Kelly Forden, and I'm here today with Alex Oline to discuss her amazing story, Quarantine, which was published first in The New Yorker and then later in her collection, which just came out, We Want What We Want. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm really thrilled to talk about this story. And I think also because, I mean, I love the story in every way. But I also have so many questions about it, too, because their relationship is so complicated. So I'm really excited to dig in. At first, I was concentrating on the structure of the story. And I wondered before I sort of unpack what I came up with about it, I'm wondering how that structure came to you intuitive, I guess is a polite way of saying it. I'm not a big outliner. I'm very open to seeing where a story draft takes me. So I didn't particularly have a plan for this story. But I will say that in general, movement around and through time and the compression and expansion of time is something that I'm really interested in and drawn to as a writer, particularly in the short story form. I just think it's really interesting when things kind of strain against the container. So the brevity of the story being allowed to include decades of a person's life is something that I find really fascinating. And it probably comes from reading Alice Monroe, my great like heroine of the short story, who I really have always you know, greatly admired in part because of the way that she'll start out in one time zone, as it were, and then pick you up and drop you into a completely different place. Or she'll do a kind of switchback time. That's the phrase that Joan Silber uses in her great book, The Art of Time. So Alice Monroe just, she has this great freedom or she takes this freedom and gives herself permission to move around really flexibly in time. So if there was a structure that I had in mind for this story, it was related to the idea of lifelong friendship and people dipping in and out of each other's lives and going through periods of closeness and then estrangement or just like not even being sort of actively involved with each other and thinking about how the canvas of the story could work to portray that. You know, I was talking with another writer named Wendy Rawlings, and it wasn't on the show, but just between us. And she also said that she often deconstructed Alice Munro's stories to try and figure out how she did it. So did you, when you say you love Alice Munro's stories, which I do too, do you actually take the time to deconstruct the story and read them on a sentence level and figure out how she makes the transitions and summarizes. And Yeah, I have spent a lot of time reading and rereading her stories and looking at how they're put together and trying to figure out how she does what she does. And one of the things that I think is so masterful about Alice Monroe is that in the end, in large part, I think she can do what she does because she is Alice Monroe <laughs> and, and no one else. Like she breaks a lot of rules. So that's just, there's a kind of fundamental alchemy of her skill as a writer, and it, it does really reward multiple readings. But specifically, when I look at her work, I have often tried to map and diagram it for myself. This is something that I do in general as a reader is um, try to come up with some kind of visual diagram of my own experience or my own progression as a reader through the story. I wrote an essay about that that is on LitHub. If anybody wants to, to Google it, you can you can find it there and see some of the maps um, that I have that I have drawn of stories. So with Monroe, for example, there's a there's a diagram that I drew of her story dimension. 
and how it moves around in time. And in Dimension, it's a story of um, a woman who has uh, gone through unspeakable tragedy and she is going to visit her husband or ex-husband in prison. And that's the present tense movement of the story. And then as we go through the story, Monroe leads us through various layers of the past. And we learn more about what happened that was so tragic and also about the aftermath of those events. And so I drew those kind of movements around in time as a kind of aqueduct with a kind of um, trajectory across the top and then layers of narrative arcs or arches underneath the main kind of present tense story. And that's not to say that that's the only way that you could diagram the story. That's just how I experienced it. But I think what it helped to illuminate for me is how the elasticity of time in the story is part of, it's part of the way in which Monroe represents trauma as being not one experience, but a recursive set of experiences. It's something that the character is going to have to return to again and again to try to grapple with. And um, it's also part of her kind of lack of morality. And I mean that in the best way, that she treats all of her characters with great humanity and she doesn't kind of set them up to be ready victims or villains. And so part of moving around these events in time is to show uh, how complicated they are and how many different ways characters can feel about what happened. What I did with yours was I was trying to figure out how you moved across time like that. So here's what I have. The first section in Spain is a thousand words. I mean, there's some summary, but mostly it's happening. You know, it's a scene. And then her father's death in 200 words in summary where we really get a full picture of him. And then Bridget's life after his death, when she becomes a lawyer, et cetera, is like 300 words summarized. Um, The wedding scene is 435 words. So that's action. It's wild. And then the parenthood, I loved, okay, that you could do parenthood, you know, carpools, soccer, et cetera, 64 (laughs) words. That was really good. (laughs) That is what it's like. You just have to a long string of events. Conference in Ottawa with Angela's 890 words in action. Then Bridget's marriage solidifies after the illness, 204 words that's summarized. She checks back in with Angela via letter, 263 words that's summary. Conversation with Charles gets 424 words, which is so where he's telling her what happened, it's it's just fascinating. And then, okay, Bridget meets him and the son at the airport, 200 words. The last section with Angela is 1359. So the sections with Angela, and then there's the summary at the end. I'll just finish with, you know, where she does says she doesn't see Angela again, and that's 247. So the three sections that include Angela in Spain, in Ottawa, and then at the end at her cottage, that is the bulk of the story, but it's wild. That was just intuitive to you because it just was so seamless. Like you just knew what to include. And even, you know, an illness of a husband, which could take over too much space in a story you did so succinctly. So that's so mathematical. I've never thought about any of my stories that way and or looked at them in terms of word count. But I, I, I'm fascinated to um, have that reflected back to me because I, I suppose what it does is reaffirm my own sense, which was that the relationship between these two women was always the focal point of the story. 
it was always going to be where time slowed down and where the kind of narrative gaze of the story was going to to linger. Um, so that does make sense to me. And I think I also... I did think of it as a kind of bookend, right? So there's the section in Spain that is the beginning. And then I felt that there needed to be a kind of counterweight or equivalent kind of uh, pacing or an equivalent moment between the two women. And that's the moment or the, the visit in the cottage when there's there everything else is kind of stripped away, right? Husbands, children, careers. You know, at the beginning, they don't have those things because they're young. They don't have them yet. And then the cottage is a kind of return to focusing on each other and inevitably a kind of temperature taking or a point of comparison for the main character of how their lives have each gone. That is really interesting. I mean, it's interesting because I am fascinated to hear about counterweights too. That's very cool. Just in terms of character, I was curious how you would describe Bridget as a character and then I'll... (laughs) Just because I have you here, you never get to ask the author. So when you think of Bridget, what do you think of? I think the moment that stands out to me with Bridget, the moment where she um, she really sort of clicked into focus for me as a person. Uh, and I, I didn't plan this in advance, but when I wrote it, I was like, oh, okay, that's who she is. It's the moment when um, she realizes how much she likes her kind of regular life. She likes being a lawyer and painting her apartment on weekends and going to the grocery store. And this idea um, that I think I liked the idea that she wasn't a kind of person who was going to pine for the lost romance of her youth and that time in Spain and like being kind of sexually promiscuous and working in restaurants. She was not going to have nostalgia for that. She was going to realize that she actually liked the routines of adulthood. And that was going to be a kind of defining quality or compass for her going forward. Okay. And then uh, um, what about Angela? Yeah, Angela is, I mean, it's a little bit, I think, reductive to say that she's the opposite of that. But um, my the way that I envisioned Angela was that she's a seeker, right? She's the kind of person who is never going to feel that sense of satisfaction or comfort that Bridget does um, with regular routines and office work and taking your kids to soccer on weekends. She was always going to be the kind of person who felt ill at ease in the world or that there had to be something else, some other plane. Sometimes uh, that's almost sort of mystical. Sometimes it has to do with health, but she was always going to be looking for the next thing, the next way to feel at ease and never finding it. The second time I read it was when I picked up on the fact that both of their fathers died. I mean, it was in there, but it, it didn't receive much space in the story. So it didn't immediately occurred to me that 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 was a pivotal moment in both of their lives. It's very clear that it's pivotal in Bridget's life because she has to leave Spain. But then Angela makes the comment that her father's business was very stable and that he had made he had said that line about, oh, you know, no matter what happens, you always need light bulbs. (laughs) And uh, so obviously she did appreciate stability at some point, but once that was gone, I don't know if you were thinking that that was a big traumatic moment for Angela too, or That's not. That's really interesting. Yeah. I guess I, I, I'm sure it didn't help, <laughs> you know, I guess I didn't think of it as a kind of causality, but now that I look back on the story, it's true that she, she loses her father. And then she also has the experience, like at the, at the beginning of the story, she's kind of enacting this play 
of marriage with this, uh, with this boy, a young man from Germany. And then she brings him home to Canada with her and then they break up. So she does have a set of experiences that are very destabilizing. And um, Bridget, on the other hand, winds up marrying someone who she has quite a successful, I think, marriage, um, even though it has its its tensions. So I don't know. I feel like it would be a little bit flattening of my idea of these women to say, well, that's how or why they end up taking the past that they that they do. But I'm, I'm sure it's part of how I envision that the whole landscape of their of their lives is that, yeah, sometimes people never never get settled or sometimes people react to trauma in one way, which is like of really holding on to what they have and being sort of resistant to change. And sometimes people react to trauma in the opposite way, which is of constantly reenacting experiences of destabilization. And um, both those things, I think, are perfectly valid and understandable responses. So, um Angela clearly sees, well, obviously it says many times that Angela sees them as best friends. And, you know, it seems like her life just sort of stops after Spain. I mean, she gets married and she has a son or whatever, but it doesn't, I don't get the sense she has much else going on or many other friends because how could Bridget be her best friend? It was such a disconnect because Bridget basically had to think for a second when Angela got in contact with her, who is this person? And then on the other hand, Angela's thinking the opposite. So what was going on there? Yeah, I, I'm interested in yeah how friendships sustain over long periods of life. And, and in many cases, when people move around, as we do nowadays, or you, you meet someone because you work together or because you go to school together or because they live on your block and they have kids the same age, right? And then what happens when the thing that held you together is no longer in operation. A lot of times those friendships just evanesce in a way that is very natural. It could be quite sad, um, but it, it is also very understandable. What, what I think is required for friendships to endure is for one person, or at least one person, to have a hunger to have a need and to be persistent. So I see um, I see Angela as having this need, right? In the same way that she's a seeker of meaning and constantly trying to figure out like what it's all about and how can she make the world make sense to her. She's also going to be the person who reaches out, who has a need for, for Bridget. And like, sometimes that is huge <laughs> in life. Um, so I guess that's, that's about all I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, that is huge. So there is a moment of foreshadowing. And I was just curious in terms of crafting, whether this came to you while you were writing it, or it just is there because you know the character. Um, but she's Angela's dancing and her new family is like very witty. They're very fun and raucous. And um, she's dancing around and there's a moment where her hair is in disarray um, and she's concerned. And I just thought, did that come to you in drafting? Yeah, as a everything comes to me in drafting. I don't really, yeah, plan out in advance. But um, one reason that I really um, prefer to draft in scene as opposed to drafting in outline is that when something like that comes to me as a gesture, it just feels so right. And for me, that moment of her kind of uneasily patting down her her hair, uh, uh, I just I was like, that's that's so that's so correct for um, what I'm thinking about in in terms of of this story. And it, to my mind, hopefully from a craft perspective, it accomplishes more 
than several paragraphs of exposition or backstory might do. Like in your kind of rundown of the story, by word count, you talked a lot about how much of the story is summary or how like large events, you know, take place almost offstage or, or are narrated very concisely. And then, you know, I'll spend more time as a writer on something like the way she's touching her hair or there's a line of uh, later on that she's she's all geometry. Grown up, she was all geometry. And to me, that is a kind of shortcut into character that is more it's more effective in terms of my own writing. I wouldn't judge it for other people, but for me, it does more and says more to track the characters and their progression through time than if I were to, you know, write some super long, extensive laundry list of events that had occurred to to Angela since the last time Bridget saw her. So when you're first drafting, you draft in scene and you might've written more scenes than made it into the story. You know, if you're drafting in scene, trying to figure out what the characters are doing, are you writing way long and then... Later on, you say, oh, this could be in summary or I can do this in a sentence or. I often do that. Yeah, I would say that's especially true uh, when I'm writing a when I'm writing a novel. I will write a whole first shaggy draft that is just scenes getting to know the characters. Very exploratory. I would say I do that less in the short story form. And I think it's just because I um, feel a lot of comfort and confidence in the story form. I just have always really enjoyed writing it and um, felt like I had a freedom to foresee and experiment with an entire 4,000 or 5,000 word story without a lot of digressions. So honestly, with this story, it sounds um, maybe strange to say, but I probably just wrote it straight through and it was very close to the final version that was eventually published. Wow. That is great. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. So if you're writing a short story versus a novel, then would the short story say this one, you were thinking, I want to write a story about a friendship, or did you have in your mind one of these characters or both when you started it? I was working at the time on a whole series of projects that are really focused on relationships between two women, really kind of excavating uh, duos or dyads of women. And uh, I wrote a whole novel about two sisters called Dual Citizens. And then a lot of the other stories in We Want What We Want are about friendships between two women. Sometimes it's work colleagues. Sometimes it's, you know, um, friends from youth, as in as in this story. Sometimes it's, it's some other kind of connection. But I, I think I just got really fascinated with the idea of um, formational friendship between women and identity formation and how these relationships that women have with each other, and, and perhaps this is also true for men, I just don't, I don't write about those things because that's not my personal experience. But for women, uh, there can be these intense, uh, not quite romantic in a sexual or physical sense, but nonetheless, extremely intense kind of chemical relationships that you have. And it's almost like the experience of falling in love where you meet someone and you develop a kind of intimacy or closeness that feels really transforming for you. And then when we lose a friendship or the friendship breaks up or um, it disappears, there can be truly such kind of heartbreak that is associated with that. So I was interested in kind of um, giving space to those kinds of relationships and and writing about them. So for this story, I definitely had that in mind that I wanted to write about, you know, why some things endure and why some things don't and what it's like when someone comes back into your life from the past. And it, it leads to an immediate moment of self-reflection for you. If you have a friend from way back when who contacts you and you immediately look at like, what happened to them? 
And then what happened to me? And what do I think about that? It's super interesting. So I was thinking about that. I was thinking a lot about social media, which plays a big role in the story. Um, Initially, uh, these two friends contact each other by letter and phone. And then there's Facebook and Instagram. And that's part of the ways in which we kind of are able to keep tabs passively on other people and how their lives have turned out, which I think is really interesting. And it connects to what you were talking about, which is like the uneven Uh, friendship where one person thinks you're close and the other person doesn't. You can have an illusion of closeness with someone if you're able to be Facebook friends with them, but it's not, it may not be experienced by them in in the same way. So I think um, that's really interesting to me. I love it when I'm able to like uh, find out what happened to people from my childhood (laughs) when they friend me on Facebook. And I I love hearing uh, from people uh, from, from the past. My sister is the exact opposite. She's like almost no interest in it, which I find fascinating. I'm like, don't you want to know? Like, don't you want to see pictures of their children in their homes? Um, But so I'm sort of endlessly curious and fascinated about that. So that was another part of the story. And then the third kind of leg of the stool was this whole um, idea around uh, an allergy to electricity. And a lot of the thoughts that I have about writing about what it's like to live in our world today and technology and climate change and the Anthropocene and what is a sane reaction to the kind of feeling of imminent apocalypse that surrounds us all the time. And in my view of the story, like Angela's reaction actually makes a lot of sense. Like I am there is like one big part of me that would love to just retire to a cottage and not... um, be online and not have electricity because it's like terrifying what's happened to our our world. So even though Bridget is the more normal and I suppose functional adult, I actually really um, connect with Angela's responses to to the world. And um, there's a film that I've always uh, I've always loved by Todd Haynes called Safe. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It stars Julianne mm-hmm. Moore. Oh, it's so good. But it's about uh, a woman. You can definitely see traces of it in my story, but it's uh, Julianne Moore's character becomes increasingly obsessed with the idea of of safety. And she starts by worrying about like toxicity and her food and her environment. And that by the end of the movie, she's like living in a dome in a biohazard suit, having gone again, like you might say she's gone completely off the rails (laughs) in terms of seeking safety. But I'm like, you know, I get it. <laughs> and right. so that was, an, that was another part of the story for me. Even though I myself, just to be clear, am not living in a biohazard suit. And I don't know. <laughs> That's all right. You know, that is really fascinating because I am interested in anchorites who, have you ever heard of, you know, who are w- women who hid away in the Middle Ages? And there is something very compelling about receding from life, especially I think if you're creative and, but I was actually going to ask you that next question about social media, because on social media, you also have the chance to see people evolve. And I, it's a very strange moment, you know, like during the elections, I also got very worked up for about a year (laughs) and just went bananas, but, but, um, (laughs) but then you know, people change. And then all of a sudden, they're only talking about, you know, fighters or whatever, something strange. And so in terms of creating characters, there's a lot of material. Yeah, no, there really is. And it's, of course, you know, it's only one sliver, right, of a person's life. As much as you're aware of that, it can also be strange when you uh, either see them change or, um, or you find out later that something huge has been going on with them that they weren't posting about. I've had people do that to me. Like I'm pretty private with my social media, so I don't have pictures of my family. 
And I've had people, like I've run into friends from long ago in person and they're like shocked to discover that I have a family because I don't post about it. Right. I'm I'm actually not obligated to put that, you know. (laughs) No, you're not. (laughs) Well, you feel like though, like on daughter's day or son's Mm -hmm. day, I always feel bad, but but they also don't want me posting about them. They don't want their picture up there. Yeah, exactly. So there's, I mean, it's a very complicated set of, um, of circumstances and there's no, like, there's no guidelines or there's no, there's no one way to, to do it. But I, I I also have had the experience and maybe you have as well of like someone's social media, like it suddenly disappears. Yes. And that's a really strange feeling too. Like, where did they go and why, you know, are they okay? And, and we right. even have these sort of parasocial experiences where it's, it's someone that I actually don't know in real life or, and um, suddenly they're gone. And I have developed this attachment to their Twitter feed or their, yeah, <laughs> their, their Instagram story. or whatever it is. And, uh, and I miss it when it's gone. And uh, that's really interesting to me as well. I think it's only been magnified during the pandemic when, not seeing anybody in person. And um, suddenly the experiences of social media have been even more heightened. Right. Yeah. And it makes you want to ask like, why are you leaving? You know, (laughs) what happened? Um, Okay. But I won't get off on that. um, (laughs) So, okay. So at one point, Angela says, so they're in the cottage together. Well, first of all, when Bridget comes up to the cottage or she drives up, it's very fairy tale like And so were you thinking in of any fairy tale in particular when you were writing this story? I wasn't thinking of any fairy tales in particular, but I was thinking of fairy tales in general and of the idea of like in a lot of fairy tales, the roles that are um, ascribed to women are sort of, um, they're sort of specific, right? So like some of the tropes around women and at least in Western uh, fairy tales are like the witch or the old crone or the evil stepmother. And then a lot of times the rescue character would be like uh, a male character or like a prince who has to do something to like in Sleeping Beauty, for example, like the, the prince has to hack away at the at the bushes to get to the princess. So I think I was interested in kind of subverting that a little bit and thinking about Bridget as someone who's going to come in and like, she's not a prince, she's a caretaker, she's a friend, but what can she do to, I don't know if she can rescue Angela, but she does go in there with the intent to intervene in some way. And then I liked the idea that rather than doing that, she would get almost sort of sucked in to the spell a little bit. And I wanted to write some scenes that were kind of quiet and beautiful between the two of them, even if the beauty is kind of tinged with with sadness, uh, that there would be something kind of magical about the place itself, a feeling where, you know, time was going to slow down and they would have this moment of not quite respite, but of, I don't know, mutual intertwining. So there was that uh, section about the trees. And is that how you then envisioned them as two trees who were connected, I'll bet underground? Yeah, yeah. There's a section about the uh, about trees and how scientists have discovered that trees have friendships and mm-hmm. they actually often uh, arrange themselves such that um, they can each reach the sun, which I think is really, I is really beautiful. lovely. And um, to me, that was, of course, a really suggestive metaphor for what an ideal friendship might be. So for me in that moment, although their friendship otherwise is quite, you know, lopsided or confused or not always um, successful or kind of taking center stage in each of their lives in that one moment, these two women do achieve that kind of beautiful equilibrium. 
and just as a sort of interesting aside, or, or it was interesting to me anyway. So I um, had this story published in The New Yorker. And when you write fiction, uh, you're rarely fact-checked at least in literary magazines, but the New right. Yorker does do fact-checking for fiction. And the only question that they had for me was around that statement about the trees. And they wanted to know, is that true? And do you have a source? <laughs> and, oh <my. laughs> uh, I know I did. I was, uh, I was like, here's the article from the New York times where I, where I read it. And I just thought it was really interesting that in this whole story that is about, you know, many years and a lot of stuff happening. That was the one thing they wanted to know. Is it true about the trees? I, um, I had read it somewhere too, and I would never have been able to remember. So it was good that you still had the article. Yeah, I know. I rarely, I have no memory for facts. So I was vastly relieved that I actually did have a source in this case. Yeah, me too. That's why I like writing fiction because no one ever checks, you know, exactly. you can just make it up. Um, okay. So it's called quarantine in the New Yorker and point of no return in the book. And I was just curious about that. Yeah, I'm sure you can imagine um, that quarantine. So this story was written in 2016. It was published in 2017 in The New Yorker. And I, at the time, thought quarantine was this really suggestive way of talking about isolation and contagion. And those were some kind of themes of the story for me about you know, where Angela ends up and the ways in which these two women at times are in their separate islands and other times are kind of mutually infecting each other. So I was like, quarantine, that's such a cool title. It was actually going to be the title of my whole collection because I saw it as, you know, these are themes that go across all of these like female friendships that keep reoccurring as a pattern in the book. Then COVID happened <laughs> and suddenly quarantine had a completely different like set of cultural resonances. So uh, I um, decided to, to change the, the title and I came up with the point of no return, uh, which I think also is suggested in the story that by the end, these two women have reached, like the friendship has reached a point of no return. Like it doesn't really have uh, a space in the world anymore. And Angela as a character has gone so far kind of astray from what Bridget's life or her sense of what's normal that, you know, they're just, they've totally diverged. So it does make sense, but I still have to admit, I kind of, I, I mourn the loss of the original title, which to me uh, worked so well, but so it goes when a, when a global pandemic hits <laughs> right. affects your fiction, you know, it's that's not pretty, going to work. Yeah. It's not, it's just not going to work. Yeah. I was up against it for sure. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you about that where she says I'm at the point of no return. And I guess that leads me to the question about the illness itself. And the conference um, for people who have an illness like me, Angela says, were you thinking of a specific uh, illness or were you thinking of some of the different symptoms? Yeah. Yeah. I I wasn't thinking of a specific illness. I was thinking of, I feel like there are, there are a number of illnesses like autoimmune disorders that seem to affect primarily women and to have a really diffuse and hard to diagnose like set of, of symptoms. And they all seem to kind of bleed into one another in the sense that people think they might have one or then, or then another. And sometimes they seem to kind of rise and fall in popularity as doctors get familiar with them or then, ha- you know, try to sort of refine their diagnoses and 
maybe because of the gender component, sometimes these illnesses are not taken seriously by the medical establishment. And as a result, these women gravitate to alternative healing because they're not being well served by um, the traditions. And I didn't want to parody, like I do feel like there are some places in which people are really dismissive of those disorders or or um, think of them as being like, oh, these are like privileged, like white women with a kind of angst that's manifesting in in the body. I, I didn't want to go into that space. Um, I wanted to try to treat it with a certain amount of like sympathy and and dignity. And I think like Angela is is just part of this community where she can't figure out why she doesn't feel good and. Like what a huge and terrible experience, you know, to to have that. And I I don't think, you know, she really knows or or will ever know by the end. And just, you know, she's just always going to be trying to figure out what she can do to make herself feel better. And it's really, I mean, that's a really, you know, tragic experience for a person to undergo. Well, and then there was a sense too that she's married to this doctor and is he taking this seriously? But you could see a husband just being like, okay, what is happening here? And especially a doctor. Especially a doctor who has a very kind of cut and dried categorical set of medical criteria that he is is applying. And then, you know, none of that makes, makes sense to her. So they have completely incompatible worldviews. So of course their marriage doesn't last. How, how could it under the, under the circumstances? Yeah. Um, okay. I know I'm running out of time. So I, um, the bone colored cardigan and she likes everything bone or off white. Did that just seem to go along with the geometry? Yeah, it seemed to go along with the geometry. And I think, for me, it also connected to this desire for something organic and therefore authentic. Like she's not someone who's going to be drawn to neon colors or designer drugs. She's someone who's going to be eventually making mushroom tea and taking bee pollen. So the bone colored cardigan, like even to refer to it as bone is part of this like desire to find a more authentic way to live in your body. So it's um, meant to be a kind of signal towards her eventual journey in that direction. And did you see her as just getting more and more sick because she's not eating? She's not, I mean, she has no food in the house at all, right? So you could get to a point where you're avoiding so many things you can't even sustain life. Yeah. I think as a writer, I prefer um, things to be a a little bit ambiguous and often they're ambiguous. I want them to be ambiguous for the reader. I want to leave some space for the reader to come to their own set of judgments about the situation and the character. And I'm quite comfortable with it being ambiguous, even for me, the person who wrote the story. So I absolutely think that you could look at what happens at the end and decide that Angela has completely made herself sick by not eating properly. I also think it would be a completely valid reading to say that, well, she can't eat because she feels so terrible and it's her sickness that is making her unable to eat. Both are, both are true. Angela is in, a, is in a very kind of dire situation because of her illness. What the actual source of the illness is the source of her discomfort. Um, I don't think the story wants to pinpoint that. And to me to, um, to have there be like one answer to that um, would be to like reduce the kind of fundamental mystery of the story for me. So I don't know which it is and I'm comfortable with not knowing. Well, I love hearing that because I think that's what I remember when I look back on stories I've read, the ones that I remember are the ones that leave that space for you to conjecture and you never quite know. So 
in the end, she's not going to see Angela again. Bridget is saying that this she's coming to this point in her life where the kids are going to go to college. And then she says, sometimes she thought of this aloneness as a luxury. Sometimes she thought of it, she was afraid of it. Sometimes she saw her life as a tender thing that was separate from herself, a tiny animal she had happened upon by chance one day and decided to raise. It was terrifying to think how small it was, how wild, how easily she could fit it in the palm of her hand. And I thought that was the moment where I really had a sense of Bridget because it seemed like, you know, she's going to be stripped back to herself. But who is that? Like, even in the beginning, Marco's the junkie, Angela and Hans Anders are the, you know, temporary parents or whatever. Uh, Her father's sick. Her mother tells her to move on with her life. Angela requests she comes to the wedding. Charles requests she comes to take care of Angela. Her husband gets sick. Her children are playing soccer, et cetera. And it seemed to me like she was being summoned, summoned, summoned by all these people. And she was just answering the call over and over again. So I was really curious at the end, what will she do once no one is calling for her anymore? I love how you put that. And it makes me think of this great essay by Charles Baxter about uh, the request moment. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, There's a brief excerpt from it on the Grey Wolf website. You could perhaps also link to on your blog if you wanted to. But I find it really helpful because he talks about how much um, in great literature is built around commands, requests, advice, right? Demands and obligations that one character puts on another. And that a lot of what we think of as like, we have this idea of like the active protagonist who wants something as being crucial to dramatic or narrative structure. But in fact, life and fiction both have to do with systems of power and obligation and intersecting networks of social duty. So to write about request moments, is actually an incredibly fertile way of of, um, describing that or representing that. So as you note, this is a story that is one request moment after the next. And I do think that that's actually, um, again, not to hammer the point about gender, but that is very true to the experience of a lot of women is that um, they often take on caretaking roles or are often kind of called upon to define themselves in relation to each other as opposed to more kind of stripped down uh, around their own individual ambitions. So I think you're right that the story does end on a lot of uncertainty for Bridget and that although she's gone through many decades of life, there are still a lot of lingering questions for her about what her life means. And I thought of the end of the story as trying to mimic the experience of looking through the wrong end of a telescope. You know, when you look and you see things and everything has become really small instead of really close up and how kind of um, strange that is and how things that are actually very familiar to you can begin to look very kind of uncanny and and odd. And that's the moment that she has come to at the end of uh, the story in her middle age. Oh, interesting. So who knows what will happen to her next? Mm-hmm. You'll have to write that. No. <laughs> well, I, I, I have a million more questions, but I, I, our time is up. So I just wanted to ask, is there anything that I missed that um, you wanted to talk about and I didn't bring it up in the story? I don't think so. You had excellent questions and a, a really perceptive um, readings of the stories. So thank you so much. It was really a, a privilege to have this conversation with you about my work. It was a privilege for me to have you on. Thank you so, so much.